I started to get this idea that it was really important to me if I wanted to dedicate my life to science, that I wanted to be able to see like a real world impact of that science. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic is an entirely new complication. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Well, we're learning more about the risks every day, figuring out how to work, get health care and groceries, and see family and friends face-to-face are particularly challenging in the COVID era. This special series of episodes in the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast is designed to help you navigate the new COVID world while living with lung cancer. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer, the researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments, and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. I can't tell you how excited I am to share this conversation on this Hope With Answers podcast today. Last summer, I had the great pleasure of hosting a conversation with four of LCFA's young investigators and Marta Kaufman, an LCFA board member and the co-creator of one of the most beloved television shows in America, Friends. And if you're a Netflix fan like I am, you'll recognize her as the co-creator, executive producer of Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. This group of women is so inspiring. They're tackling some of the most difficult challenges to treating lung cancer, finding new treatments, and they're adding to the body of knowledge about lung cancer, all while running their own labs, raising young families, and living very busy lives. It is such a treat to be able to listen in to Marta's fascinating conversation with this group. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me to do this. I am so thrilled to be here and be part of this conversation Um, particularly because I'm joined today by some of the amazing young women investigators who've received grant research funding through the Lung Cancer Foundation of America's Young Investigator Grant Program. Um, And I'm going to say your name and I'm going to say a little bit about you and then raise your hand so we know who we're talking about. Triparna Sen uh, works at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Sen Grant research is studying how to boost the body's immune system to target and eliminate small cell lung cancer tumors. Triparna? Yes, hi. I'm very glad to be here. Um, We have Alice Berger um, from the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Berger's grant focus is the genetics of lung cancer in women who have never smoked who also participated in the Women's Health Initiative of the largest U.S. prevention studies of its kind, involving more than 161,000 women. Alice? That's right. Thanks so much, Marta. I'm looking forward to talking with all of you today. Jarushka Naidu from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Naidu's focus is to identify whether a patient's gut microbiome may affect a lung cancer's 
cancer patients' response to a certain type of immunotherapy. Hi, everybody. I'm Tarushka. It's a pleasure to be here in the company of leaders, both from an advocacy and support, as well as an investigator role. Um, we are looking forward to partnering with patients, advocates, funders, and investigators to, to move the field of lung cancer forward, and I am privileged to be a part of that. Thank you. And we have Christine Lovely from the Van Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Lovely's grants research is also on small cell lung cancer and focuses on early detection and the need to develop novel diagnostic and treatment strategies for patients with this disease. Hi everyone, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much to everybody who's listening in and taking some time during this very busy, hectic and challenging time to really support and advocate for all lung cancer patients. Thank you, thank you. So um, as I'm sure everybody can tell, we have an amazing group of researchers and clinicians who have dedicated their professional lives to finding better treatments for lung cancer. So I have to ask you all, what drew you into the field of specifically studying lung cancer? Alice, do you wanna start? Sure, I'd love to. Um, yeah, so for me, I got interested in science from really just a um, curiosity-driven way. I just love to learn, and so as my school went on and on, I just kept asking more and more questions, so you get to the point of, you know, well, there's no answer for that yet. We don't know. And as I got interested in biology, as I worked in a um, immunology lab after graduating with a degree in chemistry, um, I learned about cancer biology, and I started to get this idea that it was really important to me if I wanted to dedicate my life to science, that I wanted to be able to see like a real world impact of that science in my lifetime, ideally. And um, cancer just was a really fascinating way to do that because it's a huge burden on our society. And it also, in studying it, will hopefully tell us something about what normal physiology is as well. So in understanding how cancer has messed up our cells, how can we understand what uh, it normally should be? I also will say that my grandfather died of lung cancer. However, he died before I was born. Um, so it's a uh, real loss to our family. And I know my dad has talked a lot about how um, that affected him when he was in college, when his father passed away. And um, for me, I didn't even know him. So um, it, it's a big void in that way. So I do have a personal connection, but it's really both of those things that drew me into lung cancer research. Thank you. Um, just so you know, my grandfather died of lung cancer as well, and I did know him. Um, um, so I understand. I totally understand. Triparna? Thank you. Yeah, I, I was initiated to cancer research very early in my life. My father is an oncologist back in India, so every dinner table conversation and breakfast conversation, I used to hear about the disease that's really deadly. And uh, whenever he used to have the opportunity to send a patient along the path of recovery, I used to see this sense of purpose in him. And I kind of wanted that. I wanted to be in a profession where I could like get up every morning with a sense of purpose that I get to serve. My research, my work needs to make a difference. Uh, so I was in, interested in cancer research, maybe from my school time. But uh, the fact that I took up lung cancer research came much later. And I do have a personal connection. I lost a family member to lung cancer. 
And when I was doing my PhD, I learned about the disease. I learned how much we do not know about lung cancer, how much we do not know about the biology, how many patients, uh, in spite of it being the largest killer, how many patients we are not even able to save. So I think that is the point when I thought that this is a disease that needs immediate attention. And I really wanted to contribute to that. So I would say it's the very personal connection that I have. And I'm really glad that I'm doing what I'm doing because every day I get to feel like I'm making a difference. And it's a very gratifying job. Thank you. Sharushka? Yeah, so I think I was drawn to oncology and lung cancer for, for similar reasons um, as Alison uh, Triparna. So I think clinically, um, I think first and foremost, if you meet most lung cancer physicians, we are very clin clinical at heart because I think most of us understand that patients with lung cancer tend to be very unwell or present initially with more advanced stages of lung cancer. So most of us are, are very seasoned clinicians and a lot of our drive to innovate in lung cancer is rooted in these patient stories. Um, people who, who might be very young or who might present very symptomatically and the need to, to innovate and do things that will help people expeditiously. And I think that's particularly poignant in patients with lung cancer who tend to be a more unwell patient population. I think the second thing, which is maybe not unique to lung cancer, but definitely a part of oncology is we are very much a team sport. We in medical oncology, I think, are the quarterback of the team, um, coordinating you know, between medical oncology, radiation oncology, surgery, palliative care, and of course the, the patient themselves is in the middle of that team. And I personally find the whole process of looking after a patient who has these varied needs, very energizing and very fulfilling, and working with others and uh, working in a team structure to help a patient is something that is rooted in, in lung cancer therapy and certainly related to my research where we're even now involving uh, specialists in other specialties in infectious diseases and immunology. So our team is growing. And, um, and I think it's a, actually a very exciting time to be part of the lung cancer community. Thank you. Christine? So I too had a grandparent who died of lung cancer and I did not know her either. And I think um, having a personal connection and the number of people who have a personal connection really speaks to just how prevalent lung cancer is. More than 235,000 Americans every single year. Um, this is a disease that we need to tackle from multiple perspectives and have an all-hands-on-deck approach, for sure. We cannot have enough smart, dedicated people studying lung cancer. I'm going to put a little bit of a different spin on it, though. So I um, grew up in New York and moved to the South and love living here in Nashville. Um, I think in my area of the country, in Southeast, we have the highest prevalence of lung cancer. We have the worst outcomes from lung cancer. And so patients here, there's all sorts of disparities, male-female disparities, rural urban disparities, race and ethnic disparities. And as we advance science, we wanna make sure that every lung cancer patient, whether they're living in New York City or San Francisco or Nashville or Alaska, has access to the latest, greatest treatment for lung cancer. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, so unfortunately, we know that lung cancer is the number one cancer killer of women. That's correct. I'm correct about that. Yes. 
um, and that the lung cancer death rate, while it's falling for men, is actually increasing in young, young non-smoking women. Um, I have a couple of questions for that, but, but primarily, um, you are all young women. Do you feel a connection with those women lung cancer patients, many of whom are your age and have families like you do? Um, how does that affect your work? Yeah, I can start, I guess. Um, absolutely, I do. I think, you know, I'm 38. And as I get older, you know, and get further from those college days, I think you increasingly feel your mortality as you have friends and family that have faced, um, you know, different challenges, whether it's cancer or other chronic illnesses. And so I definitely have a sense of it could be me at any time, um, as well as just empathy for being in the same, you know, situation. I can't imagine um, facing that with my family and my children who are nine, seven, and three right now. And so absolutely, that makes me want to fight harder and prevent um, anyone from dying with lung cancer. Yeah, I think I, I can, I'll second that. I think we all understand the urgency that comes uh, with a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, it is always particularly poignant when there are parallels between you and your patients, uh, whether it be related to your, your race, your gender, your age, but any patient, regardless of, of, of their age, their smoking status, any of those factors is, is important to us and speaks to us in some way. And, um, and I think that that, uh, that sense of urgency is also driven by the fact that we all understand there is so much room for improvement in lung cancer. There are so many ways we can understand this a little bit better. I think, you know, one of the great points you touched on is, you know, we now understand that there is so, so many differences in the biology of lung cancer that have helped us to bring these advances to our patients. And I think advancing that will help us to, to deal with that sense of urgency. Um, for our young patients, our older patients, our female patients, our male patients, as Christine said, to, to um, attend to all of those disparities and hopefully improve outcomes for everybody. So while I don't see patients in the clinic, I get the clinical reports when I'm collecting samples for my research. And every time I see a young woman, it is a pit in my stomach because I can relate. I can relate to what she, her family must be going through. And I have met in fundraisers or in outreach events, I have met young patients uh, with lung cancer. And it is heartbreaking because uh, it is always heartbreaking to see a cancer patient. But when you see young patients suffering the way they do in lung cancer, it really kind of makes you want to go back to lab and probably just start working. I mean, I have often uh, felt that I have to do something better. I have to push myself out of comfort zone when I see these young patients, especially women, because I feel a sense of connection to them uh, with lung cancer. And it's growing. As you said, the percentage is growing. I work with small cell lung cancer, which is usually seen in older patients, but Every now and then we do see patients uh, who are younger in age and then uh, it has a very small time frame through which the diagnosis happens and when the patient is deceased. So that it kind of gives you that sense of urgency that you really need to do something now, really need to do something fast. And uh, as I said, uh, as Christine said, it's like an all hands on deck approach and uh, it 
I think it is a, one of the biggest driving factors for me. I'll just add the last point. Um, when you see a young female with lung cancer, that's not what 99.999% of people think of someone who is supposed to have lung cancer. And it really drives the message home that anybody can have lung cancer. And it really drives the message home that nobody deserves lung cancer no matter what. And that this is a disease in which the stigma is tremendous. And we all need to have more empathy for our patients. And so I think, of course, um, as young females, we identify with young females. But part of that is also just trying to um, really connect with people who need support and empathy um, and offer not just prescriptions and great therapies, but also uh, kindness and support and everything to, you know, this is not an easy journey for anybody or their family members. And so I think um, to Jerusalem's point before, you know, the lung cancer community is blessed in that it is a very tight-knit community and we all know each other, we work together and we share patients and that's what we need. It, it will, like all hands on deck, no doubt about it. So, so I have a question. Um, you, I, I can't imagine that yours is a nine to five kind of job. I can't imagine that, that clinical work research is on a timetable. How do you balance your work and your life? So I'll start. Um, so I uh, see patients in clinic, and I also run a research laboratory. So I train students and postdocs to study lung cancer. And that's what I wanted to do since I was 16 years old, and I just been 45 this month. And so um, something for more than 30 years, thank you, Rusa, um, that I've been really excited about. Um, I think you do work hard because you love your work, and you love the people you're working with, and you love your patients, period. And, and you figure out ways to make it work. Um, and you have to keep figuring out ways to make it work because life changes. Nobody thought we'd be in a pandemic situation this year, but we are. Lung cancer doesn't stop because of the pandemic. We just need to find other ways to study lung cancer to treat our patients. And so I don't, from my perspective, there's not a magic answer to this question. How do you make it work? Um, you just make it work because you want to make it work, period. Thank you, Christina. And thank you for mentioning, you know, that lung cancer hasn't stopped just because of the pandemic, because I get asked, including from my daughters, hey, mom, don't you think you should switch to COVID now and study COVID? And, you know, you've seen some scientists who are contributing, you know, the skills that they can have to the pandemic, which is incredibly important. But my answer has always been, you know, I think I have a full plate until lung cancer is cured. And so I want, especially as a young investigator, I want to remain focused kind of on my research program right now and those goals so I don't get distracted and, you know, spread myself too thin. Um, so I guess staying focused then could, could count as one way I kind of try to find this balance. And then the other thing is, you know, yeah, being a cancer biologist, it is all encompassing. I, you know, work at odd hours and write grants or come into the lab sometimes still to do experiments um, or, or troubleshoot things with my trainee. Uh, but it's also very flexible. And so I've been able to thankfully, you know, fit that around my family life, particularly in the pandemic, where I might now have to spend some time with my children, homeschooling them during the day, but I can fit in extra hours on the weekend or at our convenience, you know, around that. And so, yeah, there's no magic answer. It's just uh, day by day, you know, and attending to the, to the most critical priorities at any given day. 
as my previous uh, Alice and Christine pointed out, lung cancer research is all-consuming. It is definitely not a nine-to-five job. Either you are doing uh, the work or you're thinking about it. So it is definitely uh, uh, not a nine-to-five. Uh, how I see it is everybody has their boundaries. And I have, over the years, set very healthy boundaries that I follow. Um, I have very supportive family and friends. So what I do is uh, I schedule my downtime as meticulously as I schedule my work time. So if I ever feel like I'm getting overwhelmed or there is a burnout, I take a step back because I've learned over the years, if I'm not operating at 100%, I'm of no use to my team. So I definitely schedule downtime. I love painting, so that's something I do. So I go back to like making one or two paintings a week. Uh, that's sort of the way I recuperate. I'm also involved in a lot of female leadership program uh, with Association for Women in Science, 500 women scientists of the New York Quad. So that's also my way of like mentoring and bringing up the next generation. That's sort of something I do other than research, which is still related to what I'm passionate about, but I'm not thinking about actively about lung cancer. So I think that has helped me over the years to setting these very good boundaries that I need to go back and forth. And the key is for me is to be 100% present where I am. If I'm in the lab, you can't pull me out. But if I'm vacationing, I am vacationing. So I guess that has helped me over the years uh, to keep this healthy boundaries going. And I hope to keep this up as I get busier and busier in my life. Um, I think that's, you know, everybody has said some very important um, messages here. And I agree, this isn't a nine to five job. And one of the reasons, you know, that I think we're all able to do this regardless is because we have a passion for our work and we don't really count work as work. I know sometimes my husband kind of says to me, will you please stop studying? You're always studying, you're, all, you're reading this and you're reading. And I, I keep sort of saying to him, well, I'm not really studying, I'm sort of tipping away at something, I'm reading an abstract one because this is fun to me. I'm reading and I'm learning and I'm growing and I don't count it as work. And I think a, a lot of us, can subscribe to that and that helps us to deal with the fact that there isn't a strict nine to five. I think the other factor that Trapana brought up is the importance of family and the importance of delegation. You know, I think particularly as women, sometimes we feel that we need to do everything. We need to be everywhere at every single time. But like oncology, life is a team sport. And we need to respect our partners, respect our family and the roles that they play and delegate to them because they can do it just as well as we can. And, um, and bringing them in actually strengthens the team. Um, and then I think the last thing I would say is that we need to also create balance in our lives. So I'm also a Pilates teacher. <laughs> And um, I teach Pilates once a week. And um, I think that gives me a mental break um, and helps to, to sort of develop another side that, um, that is you know, both self-fulfilling for me as well as, um, as ta taking us away from maybe the emotional side of looking after patients who have um, a lot of physical and emotional needs. So I think investing in ourselves as people um, is also very important to creating that sense of balance. Balance is right. I'm amazed by this group of women and everything they're doing to advance the research on new treatments for lung cancer.
And up next, we'll continue the conversation to hear how this amazing group is changing the face of lung cancer research. Are you enjoying the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast? Consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. Today, we get to be a fly on the wall to listen in to a conversation with some of the world's top lung cancer researchers. In this case, they are all young women who have an important message for young girls. Many of these scientists have young families, and all of them are contributing to lung cancer in ways that will benefit patients now and years into the future. Let's find out more in this conversation led by renowned Hollywood entertainment producer, Marta Kaufman. So 10 of the last 14 LCFA Young Investigator Research Grants have gone to young women investigators. But I think when many of us, certainly of a certain generation, think about what a scientist looks like or a medical researcher looks like, it probably isn't a woman and it probably isn't a person of color. So I'm curious who your role models were and who were your mentors and supporters? I think I can take that one. Um, so I have an interesting trajectory. So I'm, I'm, I'm ethnically Indian, but I grew up in South Africa. Um, it, it's the second largest population of Indian people outside of India. And, um, and then I won a full scholarship to go to medical school in the Republic of Ireland. Um, try to find a place more Caucasian in the world. Um, and that will, you'll, you'll have trouble other than Ireland. But I have to say, uh, you know, despite that, the culture is extremely welcoming and, um, and extremely supportive of bright and eager minds, no matter what they look like and where they come from. And through my work there, I, um, I obtained a scholarship to do my fellowship um, where Trapana works at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And now I work at, um, at Johns Hopkins. So in, in Ireland, I had a very traditional mentorship uh, group, mainly senior men, um, but, but you know, very much he for she senior men um, who were invested in the growth of, of dynamic individuals, no matter where they came from. And, um, and that is something that I think is very important to, to how we think about things. Um, the second thing I, I would say, or the second part of the story is at Johns Hopkins, so my boss is Julie Bramer. She's a, you know, a young dynamic uh, guru of immunotherapy. And she, along with Liz Jaffe, who's the former president of the AACR, um, are my, my principal mentors and the heads of my mentorship committee. So the feeling is very much girl power in lung cancer, I have to say. Um, and, and there is a lot of girl power in lung cancer. So, um, so I think, you know, most 
most folks that you speak with, they have a variety of mentors through their career. But I feel that definitely there is a surge of women in science and, and a real focus on developing young women. And there are emerging women leaders, many of whom are supporting our growth. And I personally would like to thank them because they have served as role models, but equally there are many senior men that have served as role models for me as well, and they also need to be acknowledged. So mentorship comes in various shapes and sizes, and I'm very fortunate to have, to have benefited from much of that. I can, I can add to that. So I was born and brought up in India, and I can tell you the amount of times my identity as a woman or has been held against me. Uh, so it has been a very long journey. So I'll, I'll, I will divide my question into two parts. It's a personal inspiration. So I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And I guess a lot of the driving force comes from if you really love what you do, I think no hurdle is big enough. And I have, I consider myself to be spiritual. So I have a lot of faith in myself. So I had hurdles where my entire identity as a woman was considered like a, as a drawback for me, but I did uh, overcome all those uh, because I loved all that. And then I moved to the United States about seven years ago. So now there is a question of not only being a woman, a woman of color, but also being an immigrant. So there's an extra layer of complexity that it adds to everything. Grants you can apply for, uh, you get, you just have to get used to the culture and everything. But I would say that what got me through is having uh, mentors, as Jerska was saying, strong female role models, and also your peer group of women who are not competitive, who are ready to, you know, be your support group. I think it's very important that your peers are, you choose your peers well, and, uh, you know, you have that support group where you kind of bring each other up. I cannot say enough about how much I'm thankful to the mentors I've had. Uh, my postdoctoral mentor, who was an MD Anderson, she was a woman herself. She had two kids, but I, I saw her do it all. And I, and I felt like, you know, I could do everything as well. And you really can, actually, if you it is not easy, but it really is possible. So I think having good mentors, having a strong support group, and above all, uh, having that courage and compassion that you need to go forward. I think that uh, really goes a long way when you have these uh, complexities in your uh, path. Yeah, I'll just say, um, like uh, Jerushka, strangely, or maybe not strangely, most of my early mentors in my career were all men. But I didn't, the reason it was, I say strangely, is because I didn't really think about that at that time in my career. And you know, I was raised from my parents to believe that I could do whatever I wanted to do. So I always had, you know, that kind of in my mind. But I, I think as I got older and closer to, you know, getting married and having kids, you know, you do start to wonder, am I going to be able to do all of this? And um, I actually didn't have a female mentor until my postdoc, who was not my primary mentor, but I joined a mentorship program where they would match you with like another mentor for whatever your purposes were. In my case, it was to look for an academic career. And it was so helpful to have her perspective. And um, she didn't have kids herself, but she 
made me think about um, how to best, you know, kind of strategize about my upcoming maternity leave, the, the kinds of things I could advocate for for myself in my lab at that time that I, I don't think I would have ever thought of or gotten um, from a male mentor. So I would just encourage, you know, if there are any um, young women who are seeing this to, you know, seek out those female mentors. If you don't have them in your, um, you know, in the traditional sense, that's fine. You know, I learned so much from the male mentors that I had, um, many of which had their own families and were mentors in that kind of work-life balance sense as well. But seek them out. There's not one form of mentorship. You can find them through organized programs, through informal interactions. And so, um, you know, go out and find those women that, that can help you and guide you. Uh, well, anything um, like our other panelists, I've had many mentors over my training, which has spanned more than two decades to go through college, medical school, graduate school, internship, residency, clinical fellowship, and postdoctoral fellowship. And my dad used to joke, you're going to retire by the time you're done with your training. Sure. I think, like Alice said, there is no one form of mentorship. There's no one mentor. And a, a part of mentorship that I really want to mention is reverse mentorship also, in that we learn all the time from people who are maybe um, a step below us in training. And, and, and I have many mentors who are technically below me in terms of their education path, um, but who remind me um, about work-life balance or who teach me new things that I didn't know because that wasn't part of my training or it hadn't been discovered yet. And so mentorship comes in all forms from all different faces and from all different ages as well. And mentors can be people who are younger than you as well. Right. That's great. Thank you. Um, so many of you have been incredibly generous with your time to partner with LCFA Speakers Bureau, members on the Hope with Answers video series or the Hope with Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast. Why is it inspiring and important to work directly with people who are living with lung cancer on these types of outreach projects? Oh, I can, I can, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Chaparna. Oh, I can start. I, I'll say it because um, unlike pe other people on the call, I don't see patients. So I think these are incredibly important to me because when you're in the lab and you're like uh, doing preclinical studies with your cell lines and with your mice, you can get uh, really, uh, you know, cooped up in the science that you're doing in those preclinical models. So I guess meeting people living with lung cancer is, it's a reminder that the work that you do has a direct effect, not only on the people, on the patients, but also on their families. It gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of direction and urgency. Like, you know, you do not, you want your work to go into the clinic to help clinicians like Jeruska, like Christine, to really take their work forward. You want to help them so that they can in turn help the patients. So I think these interactions are incredibly useful because uh, it gives you sort of a sense of direction and purpose. And, I, and it's a two way, um, way as well, because when we speak, the patients and the funding agencies and the, the families, they can also understand the work that we do and why is it important? Because we often want patients to contribute their, uh, their tissues or their blood in the clinical trial. So unless and until they understand why you're doing what you're doing, 
they're unlikely to contribute to your research. So I think these events are incredibly, it's a two-way traffic and it's incredibly important that these continue. And I'm very happy to contribute. I'll say, I think interacting with the patients also just brings such tremendous hope. As you saw when we started this forum, almost everybody on this call has a personal connection of lung cancer, and that's not unique to the people on this call. If you're out there and you're watching, you have a personal connection to lung cancer. And I think putting a face behind it and saying that it's okay to talk about this, we should talk about it, we should bring awareness and hope that people are surviving with lung cancer. Because listen, in all of our lifetimes, it wasn't that long ago where patients would say, you have lung cancer, just go home and we'll send hospice to your house. And now we have chemotherapy, we have targeted therapies, we have immunotherapy, we have early detection, we have liquid biopsies. That's amazing. We still have a long way to go. And I think having this joint ventures with patients and physicians and researchers talking about where are we and where we need to go just brings a continued voice to this deadly disease that has not had a voice until very recently. Yeah, I'll just say I'm also a basic scientist, actually, like Traparna, so I don't see patients. And, you know, we're in the lab all the time, or writing grants, trying to figure out how we can make that next discovery. And let me tell you, it can be discouraging. It's hard, right? The reason there's no, you know, magic cure for all of lung cancer right now is because it's really hard. And that's sometimes one message I want the lay public to get. Um, and, and that's why we're also working so hard and, and so passionate about it. And so you can't get discouraged. But when you meet a patient who has benefited from one of these advances, you know, that you may have been a part of, you know, a small part of, um, I was part of the kind of characterization of met splicing mutations as part of this huge consortium, the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. And later I shadowed a um, physician at Mass General Hospital and actually got to meet a patient that had been on met targeted therapies. I mean, that was so incredibly motivating. And there's, you know, no way I could have matched that level of enthusiasm without interacting with someone who's actually benefiting from those therapies. And now I've been able to actually see that kind of the next level of that as a um, PI now running my lab, because I have a graduate student who was initially interested in more like really basic genetics, like, you know, really far from advancement into patients. And she actually had the opportunity to meet with one of the patient advocates, Janet Freeman Daly, who I met through my interactions with LCFA. And um, actually that has inspired my graduate student to think about dedicating her career to lung cancer as well. So um, that really just filled my heart with joy to hear that. And it's really exciting to see how these patient advocates are impacting the next generation of scientists as well. I think the last thing I would add to that is, you know, as a clinical researcher or a translational researcher, we talk about bench to bedside or bedside back to the bench discoveries, but interacting with patients doesn't necessarily just have to happen at the bedside. So these interactions with patients are, are seminal to the work we do. As a clinical researcher, I have to be honest, the patients give me the questions. So if you, if you listen closely enough, the patients are actually telling you what the next research questions are. So for example, a lot of my research is in immunotherapy and in the side effects of immunotherapy. And the very first patient I saw during my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering developed inflammation of the lungs as a side effect of immunotherapy, pneumonitis. And since that initial interaction has spawned over 15 publications that I've worked on 
because it lives with me. The questions that they ask, why did I develop this? Are there, are there certain things that make my pneumonitis worse than others? Is it to do with my CAT scan? Is it to do with my shortness of breath? And at the time, I recognized that these were all open questions. And remembering that conversation is like a checklist of all of the publications that I've worked on. So I think um, a lot of our interactions with patients, whether we are clinical researchers or or, or bench researchers are rooted in the stories of patients. And all of us working with an organization such as yours is, at, is integral to their stories as well as our stories. Um, I have one last question for you all. What would you say to young girls? How would you encourage them to get involved in science? I'll take that. Um, <laughs> I mean, go science. It's the best job in the world. I mean, you will get up every morning happy. And how many people in any other job can say that with confidence? I think everyone on this call, whether your paper is not getting published, whether your grant just did not get funded, it does not matter because your work matters. And that's something, that's a feeling no one can take away from you. There will be failures. There will be a grant that did not get funded. There will be a paper that got a rejection. Does not matter because you get to do all this awesome job every day. So please, and one last thing I would say is always approach any profession with compassion and with courage. And I keep saying that because it has been sort of the mantra of my life is approach anything that you have with courage and compassion and have that sense of worthiness because it will go a long way because failures is just a part of any profession. You just can't do without it. But if you attach too much value to that day-to-day -day failure, like an experiment going wrong or something happening, you would have a tough time in any profession, especially in science, because a lot of the work that we do is very hypothesis driven. So have that sense of worthiness, that confidence and, uh, oh, it's the best job in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I got so excited. <laughs> how passionate you are about it. I know. I don't think there's anything I can add to that, really. I mean, I'm, you know, inspired by your words, Traparna. <laughs> and I would just say on a practical note, you know, see if you can um, talk to your teachers or professors, depending on what level you're at, and find opportunities to go and work in a lab or shadow someone in a lab for a day. Shadow a doctor. See what it's like. See what their experiences are and talk to them firsthand. And that's a great way to get started. I will say um, to all the young girls out there, and I, I imagine that every one of us on this call right now has gone through a period of time where we doubted ourselves, no matter what we wanted to do, and doubted, I can't do it because I don't look a certain way, or I'm not smart enough, or I don't have the right family or the right education. Toss that out the window. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you live. You can make it happen. And really, Parna hit the nail on the head. There is no more amazing job. I see patients in one floor and go six floors up and work with my students in my laboratory. And it's amazing because you can see the science in action and then deliver it to your patients. And I would say connecting science and medicine in a translational way really balances out some of the science is a marathon and, and problems are solved over years. Um, medicine is a little bit of a sprint and you help patients Without writing prescriptions, you, you help them by listening to them and being present and showing empathy and support. And 
there's just no more rewarding thing you can do. Yeah, it, I have very little to add to that, but I think as Marta said, it's about passion. And you know, if science is your passion, um, no matter who you are, pursue it. And I would say that to every young woman or you know, young male out there, that if this is something that you truly love and is, is your passion, go for it. I think the two other um, things that I would sort of advise, maybe a, a young woman coming up in science or a young person coming up in science is know who you are, um, know what your strengths are, um, who you are as a person, what gets you up in the morning, what makes you tick, what gets you excited. Because a lot of the time you may have you know, peers or other mentors who, um, who you can learn from, but may be excited by slightly different things. And that's okay because you can learn from them, but also follow your path and try to craft your path from there. And then I think the last thing I'd say is build your team um, and that it's not sort of you against the world, um, even though sometimes it might feel like that. We all, we all need our, um, you know, our group to support us. And so identify the people around you, whether they be mentors, whether they be friends, family members, the people that are going to help you and um, you know, smooth the path forward because they will, they will become so important to you as you go forward. Well, doctors, I want to thank you so very much for your thoughtful and passionate and fascinating answers. And I, I really appreciate you all, um, you bunch of underachievers. <laughs> <laughs> underachievers? Of course, Marta was teasing this group of incredible LCFA young investigators about how they managed to juggle such full and productive lives. That was such an inspiring and enjoyable conversation to host during World Lung Cancer Day. And thank you to Marta Kaufman and a long list of doctors, Christine Lovely, Triparna Sen, Jerushka Nadu, and Alice Berger. Join us next time on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>